0: Previously on Keep the Dream Alive.
1: The peak of Tiny Telephone was intoxicating. When you own a business, you you get dragged into capitalism, whether you want to or not. And one of the first things that happened was I wanted to, like, expand the empire. This is how empires are lost, right? In 2006, I met someone we'll call Madeline while touring in France. We made a decision very early on to get married. Madeline picks me up from the airport and I said, did you cheat on me? I'm not sure if I've like really recovered. You're not really allowed to bring grief or depression or anything else in the studio. It's almost like I became a worse person. John, his personality and his his like day-to-day existence as a human outside the studio even, it just got uh, more challenging and darker. I am touring with a vengeance at this point. We are driving on the 80 freeway in Ohio, and I look up, I scream. Jacob, you know, kind of jerks the wheel to the left. I don't know, we maybe missed the car by 20 yards. It was horrifying to me. I was like, I'm never going to tour again.
2: (laughs) I remember him having kind of like a rough time with that tour. I was just like, man, I wanted to do this forever. I didn't know that it had like a timeline on it.
1: You know, every time I talked to him, it was him just unloading his stress and anxiety on me. This place was so important to the the creative heart of of the Bay Area. And he really didn't want it to to dissolve. That was really hard for him.
3: I was devastated when I learned that it was going to shut down. Having that job gave me so much hope. And I just loved working there.
1: And that's the point where we hit ultra-sadness. And it really, really peaked. With this moment where I couldn't pay the rent in San Francisco. And I thought, whatever this is, isn't going to happen again. Like, this was special. And that was the beginning of the end. Keep
4: the dream alive. Keep the dream alive.
1: This is John Vanderslice of Tiny Telephone Recording. So, there was this realization that my landlords were basically going to incentivize me to leave the studio. And, uh, it was kind of like a relief in a way because there was just so much like money shit. Like every day was just this nightmare of, of trying to move money around and try to, it was like a, like a Madoff vibe. You know what I mean? Like like people would call in their debts and, uh, or maybe Elizabeth Holmes is is like you know the more current um and so it was so, it was psychi- psychically exhausting and it also felt i mean it was completely untenable like i knew the the that it was like ending right you you know when it's over and i knew that it was over so anyways basically the 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 stress of like an artist's life and then someone who's renting commercial real estate in arguably the most expensive city in the U.S. came to a head. And this really the second that I realized that we would have to put a date on it, I just gathered up all the engineers and I was like, hey, we're going to shut down in a year. And I think that there's something, first off, there's something weird about that where you, a year's a long way away. So, you know, you can imagine that it's not going to happen. You can also... Um. imagine that there's like easy, you know, you can easily pivot in a year. So I was just trying to blunt the kind of information as much as possible. And also, I think part of the problem too, with just this like closure is that I didn't want to close. So I I found myself just like re kind of like prosecuting the case in my mind and then like going back to my landlord and saying like, <laughs> like is there any way we could you know push this out another year and so i think that you know everyone got the news and they're probably just thinking okay what do i do next and you know freelance engineers they do, they do a lot of shit they're in bands they do front of house on tours sometimes they work in other studios they have complicated rich, uh, creative lives. So, you know, it meant something to people and then it it was probably just something you absorb and then move on with. Um, for me, I think that my identity was so wrapped up in the studio that it really fucked with my head. I think that there was this idea that you, and this is, of course, human folly, but that you build something and it is permanent and its um, it has, like, iconic value and nothing is permanent. There's, there's no scenario that that's not going to bring heartbreak. You know, when you want something that you've built to stay put, it's, you're going to be a very sad person. So I, over the next year, I kind of just got used to the idea, which was very useful because the second that you're, Knocking down walls with, with a sledgehammer and pulling out cables. I mean, you're basically like, you know, cutting open this like living body and just pulling out the, its nervous system. And, and, and it's like its skeletal, you know, infrastructure to sell on the black market. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's like if you build a studio, right, and then you tear it apart, rendering it completely useless there is something that it is the the least sacred thing i've ever been a part of do you know what i mean it's it's like it's i'm not religious but i I, ca- I can imagine like like you know destroying a church would have this vibe of like you know this is this space it becomes comical when you destroy its higher purpose and the weird thing that that happened is that when we started knocking down walls and and um dismantling the studio the space itself became very ugly very quickly it just was like this kind of like dingy warehouse right next to the 101 freeway within five minutes i was like fuck this is like (laughs) this the witch is dead man like you know what i mean like it was really uh shocking how quickly the spell was broken
2: My name is Meryl Garbus. I have a band called Toon Yards, and I also uh, produce records and have co-produced records in Tiny Telephone in San Francisco. Yeah. JV had kind of mentioned for years that the lot that Tiny Telephone was on was would be sold at some point. And if you live in the Bay Area, you kind of you know, you're seeing the forest for the trees in terms of gentrification and and the impact of the tech world on real estate. You're seeing that all around. So I wouldn't say it was surprising. I do think that there's this assumption, a very naive assumption that I have, that something so so great <laughs> that's something so important culturally we'll find some kind of savior you know we'll we'll find some kind of we'll find an investor um and i think you know as is the case lots of times there's a threat you know the the person who owns the land says or the property says i'm going to sell i'm going to sell and that can go on for years and and it's my understanding that that kind of you know that that threat was around for a long time before it actually happened. So, so when it finally did happen, I, I think there, yes, I was surprised. Um, and, and again, maybe naively so, but there's this idea of like, what is San Francisco? Um, who is San Francisco? And, you know, I don't know very much about what was there before Tiny Telephone. I, I moved to the Bay Area in 2009, I only knew San, you know, a uh, San Francisco with Tiny Telephone, and I only knew the culture surrounding Tiny Telephone and how it interconnected with other studios that I knew, like New Improved Recording in Oakland, where where we recorded the um, second Two Yards album. That there were these affiliations uh, between engineers and a really small community of indie recording studios. So yeah, it it, it was. I think there have been a a number of the bottom falling out uh, feelings, uh, things that have happened in Oakland that feel like, oh, this is real. The cultural shift is real. And um, the feeling of loss is real. And losing a lot of people to LA and New York, that's real. Um, And certainly tiny telephone Closing in San Francisco, that was one of those moments for sure.
1: So, as the studio is getting decommissioned, um, one lucky coincidence was that I was and maybe i did this intentionally i was moving to la at the same time and there was something about uh starting you know this new very very different life um in la that blunted the kind of emotional pain of of decommissioning the studio it was a, it was a com- really new beginning and something really important about my life was that I simply would never have stayed in San Francisco for that long. Had it not been that I was caretaking this, um, this maniac baby, you know, called tiny telephone, like this very volatile and needy, um, cash hungry (laughs) baby, I would have just moved on. Like, you know, I would have Lived in a lot of different places. I mean, I like San Francisco. I loved San Francisco when I moved there, but I I just think I would have gone to a bigger city sooner. Um, And really, the first—I remember the first night that I moved into the 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 house that I live in in LA now, which is John Congleton's old house. um, I went to like a grocery store, and there was a this taco truck called Taco Zone that was parked in front of the grocery store. And I was like, whoa, this is the first time in a long time that I'm like looking at something that's like a new, I live in this place and this is like an unknown, this is one thing I don't know about. And it's been like decades that I I know every square inch of San Francisco, you know? And it was like, it was so inspiring and so amazing. And so I just walked up this taco truck I ran into someone I knew in line. We ordered some Melitas, and they were fucking incredible. And it was warm. You know, I had like a t-shirt and was wearing shorts, which you would never, ever do in San Francisco, <laughs> like like no matter what. And I thought, I can fucking do this. And so it really... I think it really helped the trauma of, of, of like closing the studio because I simply wasn't like driving by it every day. You know, I lived in LA and I had this new other thing that I was building, which was, I have, you know, a two car garage recording studio in my backyard. And so I was kind of like building something at the same time that I was like tearing this other, you know, very important thing down. And I think that really helped. And, It reminded me that there's rebirth, like potential rebirth, everywhere all the time. And I am very happy in Los Angeles. So it it wasn't like a mistake for me to move here.
0: Hey, this is John Congleton, producer, engineer, mixer, writer, collaborator, creator, band member, uh person. So I lived in LA, and um John had been talking about LA and had visited a couple times and seemed like he was getting a little uh crispy with San Francisco for a lot of reasons. I knew he had been sort of flirting with the idea, and I had um bought a house. I currently had was living next door to um, another studio and I had a studio in my backyard at that point that I was kind of doing just small things. in. so the first person I thought of whenever I was going to leave the house was like, I better call John and tell him I'm leaving this house because this is a, this could be a perfect situation for him. And of course he jumped on it immediately. John's the kind of person that like when the universe reveals something, he just sort of, he just trusts that, which is one of the things I really like about John. Uh, so he jumped on it. He took over my house, and I moved into my house, and uh, his plan was to essentially run, run Tiny Telephone from L.A. Smash cut maybe, I don't know, nine months later, year later, perhaps. A lot of things about San Francisco and Tiny Telephone uh, were becoming untenable, and I think one day I stopped by John's house, my old house, and I could tell that he was really stressed out. I could see it in his face. And I think we went for coffee and we were just having a nice catch up and he seemed really wound up. And I kind of started asking him what was bothering him. And he was just like, I, I just don't, I don't know if I can, if I really can swing both of these studios and I've spent so much money building this studio that I love. And at that point, I think I suggested that maybe it was time just to put a pin in San Francisco and, I John would have to say this for himself but I think that considering that I've been a studio owner, still am a studio owner actually I own two different studios um and have been making records for 26 years and understand the business and I've seen maybe three different huge shifts in how it all works there was something about possibly me suggesting that maybe it was time to just close it gave him permission for him to know that that's okay it was it, it was not a uh, ending, it was more of a celebration of an enormous accomplishment of keeping a place open for that long. Um, everything ends, and thank God things end, because if they didn't end, then nothing would ever have any meaning at all. Um, so I simply suggested, you know, you would immediately be out of debt if you just liquidated Tiny Telephone in San Francisco, and you would sleep easier. And there's not a single soul on planet Earth that wouldn't understand why you did it. And um, I remember that conversation being heavy for him, Um, but I think it seemed like two days later he had made up his mind after that. So I don't know if I was the only one that suggested it, but I know that it was a serious conversation that was heavy for him. Um, Maybe, possibly he needed to hear, it's not a defeat.
1: you know before you feel sorry for this guy who like lost his recording studios which honestly you probably do not <laughs> in case you do um i did uh build a recording studio in oakland that is like 3000 square feet and it's 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 pretty like amazing I mean, it's it's like a very realized and it's probably the it's like the jewel in the crown so i I'm crazy as fuck, and I probably would have built a fourth room, honestly, had I not kind of really run out of money and out of the ability to get cheap loans. But that studio is amazing, and it exists, it is healthy, our rent is where it needs to be, it's uh, sustainable, and it's being run by um, two amazing friends of mine, Bo Sorensen and Miriam Kudus. And I go up, and I mean, honestly, I try to go up there as little as possible. I don't, I don't know why. I just kind of like it here, and uh, I, I just love that it exists. And bands are still recording there. And I mean, in in a weird way, it doesn't have the this kind of like burned-in, you know, decades-long energy of those smaller rooms in San Francisco. Like that will just simply it will never be, um, that will never be replicated. But you know, what, what are you gonna do? Like this, the new one has like 23 foot ceiling. So that's also a good thing.
3: Uh, my name is Tabor Allen. I am a musician. Uh, producer songwriter so in 2017 i was playing drums with a band called cherry glazer and we had been on tour for i think like eight or nine months straight and um We were kind of exhausted by being on the road and looking to connect with like a creative experience of music again. And we started talking about just wanting to like go into the studio and make something, anything, um, anything that wasn't just like doing our show on the road anymore. And so and we wanted to do it on tape. And I had heard of this guy, John Vanderslice, actually from like a New Yorker piece that I had read about him year like I think years before. And I knew that he was like this tape analog evangelist um, and who liked drugs and punk rock <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, he sounds perfect. <laughs> so I I found like an email for Tiny Telephone online, and I think Maybe within three minutes of sending an email to the studio, I got a phone call from John VanderSlice, and he was, he was very excited <laughs> and, um, he talked my ear off for 15 minutes. And so basically there was no plan at all. By the time I get off the phone with this dude, like 15 minutes later, we've booked a month of recording at tiny telephone with him engineering the whole thing. And yeah, we had never met. And he just, and I was like, okay. And I, I got off the phone and I remember thinking this guy is a fucking cult leader. <laughs> like what, what did he just do to me? <laughs> you know, like we were totally like, I had no idea that we, we, we were not for sure that this was what we were going to do. But by the time I got off the phone with him, it was happening. Um, So that's how I met, that's how I met John Vanderslice. So even back in 2017, when Cherry Glazer was recording at Tiny Telephone, John was already talking about leaving the Bay. Um, I think like he felt like culturally there just, there wasn't very much happening. He felt like there, like all these great musicians had left. So, I mean, you know, he's very frank about it. You know what I mean? It was like a dead city to him. And so I was telling him to move to LA. Everyone else had moved to LA. The last 10 years of the LA music scene has just been like an endless like sort of parade of New York and, and Bay Area musicians um, moving here. And and so it's, it's great. And originally when he was talking about coming down here, his plan was to, you know, Big surprise build another studio (laughs) and he was looking at commercial real estate and he was like talking to other producers and it was like this thing where he was gonna just he was gonna maybe build another studio and we but we were having a lot of conversations about specifically about rap and electronic music and the pace at which some of these artists sort of like crank out this music And the, you know, in the feeling that like, in a lot of ways, like the rock world, the indie rock world, it's like, it's like this dinosaur, you know what I mean? Where you're like going into the studio for like months at a time and like crafting your like perfect record and like the label needs like a year to like plan a release. And it just can, it just can suck all of the energy and vitality out of, of your artistic process. So John and I were talking about this a lot and I was like kind of saying to him, well, like, what are you doing building another studio? Like this, this model doesn't really work anymore. Um, This, this model where, you know, you somehow put together five or $600 a day as an artist to go in and like have this, and, and, and to have your whole experience of music like, mediated through this cranky, difficult, overly complicated process uh, of, of like a legacy studio. And, and, and so we were kind of having these conversations and I was like, everything that you think philosophically about how music should be made is actually antithetical to a traditional studio experience. It's too expensive and it's too slow and it's too complicated. And he was like, you're right. <laughs> and I was like, you need to do, you just need a backyard studio. That's all you need. That's what everybody in LA has. You know, we got like a lot of space here and tons of people that I know have these great spots in and in, in their back houses and they're small, they're, cheap because they come with your house and they it's not like a place where you're going to record a six piece band or like a orchestra or like a string quartet but it's like it's a place where like if you're working in like pop or rock or electronic music or whatever it it completely makes sense the economics of it makes sense and also philosophically it makes sense because John wants to make music that is dangerous and vital and also in the like 25 years or whatever that he had been running this analog recording studio digital recording technology had changed completely and people and okay and I think this is what really got John on board is that all of these really interesting musicians and producers were. Manipulating digital audio in ways that one, you could never do with tape, and two, was like extremely irrational. And I think that that really appealed to John because I think like John just wants to break the rules. So, like, whatever the rules are, he wants to break them. And so, with I think when he saw that there was this route to where digital recording technology is now and like the things that are maybe flawed about it are actually things that you can exploit and turn into features of the music.
1: So my friend Tabor, who's very influential for me i I listen to everything he says he's he's right like all the time he we once had this meal together maybe two years ago where he told me like very undogmatically he's like hey you should like not record on analog tape anymore you listen to rap music and electronic music like literally 99 percent of the time all of that stuff is done it's like cut and paste style on a computer you should start making records that challenge your idea of like linear recording as being the only valid way or just the only way for you to create music. And he told me I should get Ableton and I should just think about working on music in a, in a, in a, just a much different way. And at first the conversation, I was like, I know he's right, but this sounds very tiring. Like I just, it just like made me so tired to think about like ditching this this kind of like knowledge base that I had fought really, really hard to learn. And, but I also knew he was right. So when I, when I opened or started this studio in my backyard, first off, it is super modest. It's a two car garage that's been converted to be a studio. Congleton did improve it quite a bit. It is a, I think it's like an, an amazing creative space, but it, it's really suited for, um, for weirder kind of electronic experiments it's a small space without um much live kind of potential so when i moved here i made this decision that like tabor was right i wasn't going to move any tape decks down here and i was going to learn how to record you know digitally and really just kind of smash all these like systems that i had in place and that's what i did in the first I mean, what's, what's wild is that like, I moved here, I was touring a bunch, I got back from a tour in Europe, uh, and COVID hit. And when COVID hit, that's really when the studio was kind of like up and running. And I had nothing but time to like read manuals and to kind of experiment on gear that I'd never used before. And and using it in ways that I'd never used before. And I I don't think that I would have really figured it out that quickly without the endless like free time of, of like lockdown shit. And so I started making records that were just more abstract than stuff I'd made before, and it felt pretty free to me, the way that I was working. I made a decision that I wasn't going to get on a label again, and I made a decision that I wasn't going to like think about... Uh, I wasn't going to be as intentional about releases and release dates and tours and scheduling stuff and I was just going to put out music when I felt like putting it out and I I had I think in some ways kind of like a rebirth of my own like creative uh, energies because of that
3: so as a producer An engineer the experience of working at tiny and with john specifically the biggest takeaway to me was commit 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 like commit to what you are doing don't look back and keep going that like john john is somebody for whom like art shouldn't be endlessly deliberated over it's an energetic process it's something that it's a spark it needs to happen and And then, and then you just keep going, you know? So it's like, I think his approach is about capturing something in the moment in the best possible way, and then moving on, right? You know, you'll live to write another song, you know, it's kind of his, his whole philosophy. And I think that that's really profound and beautiful because it's easy to get obsessive. It's easy to like, sort of get too careful thinking you're making your masterpiece over and over and over again and i think like for john it's like you don't know what your masterpiece is and you're not the best judge of that and so you just need to keep going you need to make stuff and and then make more stuff So when I heard Tiny Telephone was closing, at this point, John had moved to Los Angeles and we had become really, really close friends. So it wasn't a surprise, actually, um, because really for years at that point, he had been telling me that, it, that it, it wasn't tenable. It wasn't a tenable business model anymore. That real estate was too crazy in San Francisco. And I think for John, like true, like a true death would have been the studio becoming a museum piece. You know, I think that above anything else is what he couldn't let happen. Um, You know, because in a way, because of its history and it's like location and the mission in San Francisco and it's this like legendary place, I think that there was a route in which you jack up the prices so that regular working musicians can't afford to work there anymore. And you, you turned it into a, a, a museum piece, which is what a lot of legacy studios are. They're not places where like, like vital and creative things are happening all the time anymore. Um, because simply like not enough people have access to them. So I know that like for the studio to even be re- like a real thing for him, it had to be accessible and cheap and available. And so the fact that it wasn't really viable to keep it running that way anymore, it, it made sense that he was going to close it. I'm trying to be delicate here because it's like a lot of people made tiny telephone, what it was, but John not being there anymore, it's like, you've lost your center of gravity. You know, I mean, he is like the heartbeat of the operation. You know, he was like the cult leader, the carnival barker that was like out in the world, like evangelizing this thing and and bringing people to it. And so not that they weren't going to continue to make good records there without him, but that it I think that as a community, it probably would have been really hard to continue without him. Um, So it made sense. And like his life had changed, you know, he left the bay. He left the bay.
2: I hope he'll forgive me for saying this, but I think it, it takes someone, (laughs) it takes someone with a very specific kind of self-confidence and, um, Is that the word I want to use? I'm searching for the right word. (laughs) Chutzpah. I'm going to use chutzpah. (laughs) Um, To have such an undertaking, you know, and I've seen JV do this repeatedly and I, and I only know him pretty peripherally, but you have to have not just the vision, but this kind of insane belief that you're going to pull it off. And, that it's not going to be about, you know, making enough money to buy a mansion on a hill at the end. It's really for for the project itself and, and kind of for the glory of uh, or anti-glory <laughs> of that project. Um, so... So I think it's very rare. I think, in other words, if you're a prudent, practical person, you probably won't say, you know what I think I'll do (laughs) is throw a decade of my life into, you know, constructing a, essentially, like, an intentional community. I mean, JV could almost, you know, the documentary could almost paint him as a cult leader, I'm sure, (laughs) if you chose to frame him in that way. Um, But that, you know, I think... I think most of us are fairly conservative and limited in our visions. And I think to offer up a vision that involves so many people, um, I mean, just the thought of it is kind of scary to me, um, of trusting so many people and putting, frankly, so much money in. I mean, risking so much financially. Um, And then, you know, what I have witnessed JV go through as well is that you're not just dependent on this long-term vision, but then you have to do the nitty gritty of scheduling irresponsible rock bands, (laughs) you know, that at a certain point you're like at the computer trying to get people to put deposits down for, uh, for a studio day. So he's not just this mastermind, you know, like asking other people to, to do his bidding. He's really in the weeds of it all. And, um, I'm sure, I'm sure that, that I know that war on him. Um, so, you know, I always believe I, I'm not so doomsday about culture. Like I think, and, and, you know, I do want to name that. I think, I think the tiny telephone and, and a lot of the indie rock culture that I got exposed to at tiny telephone was, was vastly white. And I, I see living in Oakland that, there are plenty of communities around who are much, have much fewer resources that continue to thrive um, and, and strive to do you know, huge projects like this and, and um, nurture future artists and engineers. And um, so I know that that's possible. And I think, I think to really, um, I think there's a lot of invisible, especially to white people, scenes that are invisible, um, that are, that are functioning, you know, and, and supporting each other. So I always believe that, that, um, DIY culture, that people really uh, making music happen and making culture happen and making community happen, that's going to happen. Um, will it happen with this with really expensive tape machines that need, (laughs) that need constant, uh, monitoring and constant, Um, maintenance I don't know that that's another that's another whole thing but um, I have no doubt that culture survives
1: so I, I often I wonder all the time about like the viability of like the recording studio, meaning like a full service, you know, multi thousand square foot, a dedicated space for music production. Like I get emails all the time and I field phone calls from people that are like in the weeds. Like I'm building a studio. Am I fucking crazy? Like what are, you know, should I do this in bed or in, you know, Tulsa? And so I, 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 I do know that there's something sacred about pursuing some maniacal dream, right? So I remember the 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 kind of pushback that I got in 1997 um, when we opened on 9/11 of 1997. By the way, <laughs> we had to slide. We had to slide the. I think I mentioned this earlier, but we had to slide the. The kind of like the opening date because we'd have a party every year to commemorate the studio and we had to just move it over a few days. <laughs> I don't think I would do that now, actually. I think I would proudly be on 9-11. Um, but I think that like that creative acts, which I do think that like making a record or a film or, you know, gardening, I think that a creative act is not and a, building a studio is a creative act. I don't think that it's it's necessary to tie something like that to to logic and to like financial viability i'm not sure if that's even the way to see those things so when i would talk to people about the future of studios because they were like hey i'm going to like maybe go bankrupt by doing this i mean I, there is the cliche response of like, well, are you going to kind of do this anyways, regardless of what I tell you, you know? <laughs> so if you're going to do it anyways, then I think that you embrace that energy because, like, what's a rational decision? You, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that that, like, some of the weirder, riskier, least rational decisions that I made were the most interesting. So I guess I do think that studios are viable – Uh, In the future, only because they're expressions of like, insanity, you know what I mean? And I I think just like that, like concept records and feature films that are, you know, made for an audience of 2000 people are like a viable concept, like, people are going to make art. And they're going to make spaces that are adjacent to art out of like the love for craft. And I always thought like, that if i had gone into like i don't know some like brokerage shit or some like you know as a real estate agent or something i i thought like man i'm such a huckster i would have been so rich you know what i mean like i would have been like so fucking rich i'm like could have been a quasi cult leader you know what i mean because the amount of manipulation and energy it took to create tiny telephone it was like i could have put that into so many places that were more profitable um but then, one like, you know, maybe having money is like inherently a bad thing, and it makes you crazier and weirder, and maybe more destructive, and maybe facilitating people's people's like lifelong dreams has this, um, you know, almost like religious importance, you know, and so I I do think that um, building a recording studio listen, my friends are building a recording studio right now. They asked me, they're like, do you like, honestly, do you privately think we're just fucking crazy doing this? Like you could have that view, right? Of just like looking from a distance, like this is fucking crazy. They don't know what they're getting into. And I was like, no, actually I don't. I really, I believe I'm like a kid. I really see why you're doing it. And I don't think it fucking, I don't think it matters. Like, cause some of the doubts that they have they're. it's about like real life shit. I'm like, real life shit doesn't exist. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it's all a fucking simulation. It's a hoax. It's like, look, like, yeah, my rent got too high. Who fucking cares? I ran up like a $90,000 debt that was forgiven by my landlords. Like anything can happen. You know what I mean? So you, you just like, you do what you want to do. You know, don't hurt anyone, but like do what you want to do. And uh, you know, do it with every fucking blood cell you got.
0: The short answer about the future of studios is I have no fucking idea, um, and that's okay. I um, I never got into making records. Um, to you know, buy a lot yacht someday. Um, the journey sort of is the destination with those sorts of things. Um, I think anybody who wants to start a studio would be an absolute fucking moron to not have your eyes open as to what it entails. I think that studios are still totally viable, uh, especially whenever it has when you're when you're operating towards a boutique market if you know the kind of people that you're attracting, and you cater the studio to that, and you're in a location where there's enough of a scene or enough enough going on, then there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't open a studio. You should always be careful about your price points and how much you spend on it. You're not gonna wanna make it unaffordable for the people that you wanna attract. Um, if you're like me, and kind of function under an owner-operated sort of situation, that's also a smart business model by my standards. If you are actually controlling the costs of the records you, you make by owning the studio that the artist is working in, that's just going to make you more attractive to the artists who want to work with you. I've always felt like the product, the record that sits on the shelf or that streams on Spotify, is only um, maybe 25% of what I'm concerned with uh, as a producer. The other 75% is this is the thing that is a little more temporal and ephemeral that I actually feel like is more of the art form that I do, which is negotiating with an artist about how to accomplish what it is they're doing. And some of the boring shit about that is how do we make that record affordable? How do we make that record with the amount of money to where you don't owe a lot of money at the end of it if you make a masterpiece and you never get to make another masterpiece because you spent way too much fucking money doing it that's a failure to me that's great that everybody loves the record but i kind of feel a little responsible (laughs) for not helping control that so um i take a lot of pride in 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 um in trying to create the environments where not only do they make a great record but they make a record that maybe possibly they'll see a royalty check on, or um, they're not an indentured servant to a label or, or, or somebody that gave them a fucking bridge loan or something like Tony Soprano. Um, so I think running studios is still totally something that's a, a wonderful thing. There's nothing wrong with creating, creating a creative environment for people to come. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's an easier business than running a restaurant. I mean, most restaurants close in the first year, right? I can't say that about most studios. Most studios hang on for at least three years before they close. Um, If you want to make records, having your own studio is a pretty smart thing to do, I think. That's what I leave it at.
1: So... Uh, cracked passwords is a song from Dollar Hits, which is a record I made last year after the Cedars, and it's one of those records that when I put it out, I got some emails from like some old heads that were like, "Whoa, man, you've uh, really disconnected yourself from like <laughs> from pop music," and uh, and I would say, "Yeah, like, duh." Um, I think that a a, a big thing for me that happened. Um, a few years ago, I I buy drugs, a lot of drugs from the dark web. I'm a staunch believer in like moderate experimental drug use, and that we do have um, sovereignty over our own consciousness, and that if we use drugs uh, thoughtfully, that we can have experiences that enrich our lives and that like really expand our creative potential. And I made this like really fateful decision one day out of nowhere, just to buy 10 grams of crystal mdma from this seller in in germany and i bought it and i moved to to la and then i just you know COVID happened i had this pod about 20 people and we decided like oh let's just do this every three months we have a lot of time so every three months we started taking this crystal mdma and we kind of i guess every every time we took it we like upped the dose a little bit and like Tabor was like DJing all of these events and he's just like so deep into like trance and house and electronic music. And he's like such a good fucking DJ. And it like honestly changed what I wanted to hear musically like this, this drug and Tabor, it made me want to hear stuff that was like crunchy and digital and dancey and um, I don't know, different stuff than I'd ever really allowed myself to love and it completely changed what I wanted to hear from music. And I think you really hear that in Crack Passwords. You're like, oh, this fucking dude's popping Molly, man. Like, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. And, and uh, so I think that that has really continued onto the stuff that I'm making now. We're going to hear um, the Dodos if next. And I just got to say, I love these fucking creatures so much. Merrick, the singer and guitar player of the Dodos is now a full time engineer, a tiny telephone Oakland. So like, this is some full circle shit. You, you know what I mean? It's like, it's beautiful. He made, he's made tons of records at the studio. And then all of a sudden he just like emails me, Hey, I think I want to like learn how to engineer. I'm like, "Oh, fuck, if anyone could do it, he could do it." He's been recording tons. He's a, has a really, really good ear. He's a great player, and he's just his kind of like vibe and kind of like humility inside of like, you know, fierce skill set. That's the combination, you know? And I, he's just such a fucking asset to the studio. I I love this band. next song we're going to hear is Coast to Coast by Tune Yards. And Nate and Meryl are just such important, amazing fans of the studio. And, you know, when you have like loyalty like that from, from bands, I mean, they're, you know, they're an iconic Oakland band. It is It just stabilizes the studio to such a degree. I just can't, I can't even tell you. Um, and they're endlessly creative and weird and open and have done just some wild shit in the studio and I really feel that in some ways like Oakland was like built for them like they're like an ideal band to record in Oakland
5: I don't know the language all the words mean fear this land Close to coast Right, left, right, left Fantasy, fantasy Don't let them pave my feet down Or I'll drown coast to coast. Right, left, right From coast to coast Never learn to say goodbye See you in the middle When the walls come tumbling down to the sea
1: So I mentioned before that my mom died, and my mom was my best friend, and really spiritually, deeply everything to me. And so I went crazy. I just lost it. And I kind of knew that I needed like, to like reach out to uh, humans out in the world. And for some reason, touring started feeling very important to my mental health. And so my friend, uh, Sam Evian, asked me to play a show with him in San Francisco at the chapel. And I hadn't played a show in three or four years at that point. And at first I was like, oh, I didn't reply to the email right away, but I was like, there's no way I'm going to do this. And then I thought, my friend, you are like really mentally ill right now (laughs) you you want to like jump off the golden gate bridge so maybe you should like switch it up you know and so i uh got a you know a short set together i played solo i played just like acoustic guitar and i was fucking terrified to play that show i got out on stage and you know the room was packed i looked out and i was like okay i know how to do this and i started playing and i started talking taking questions and i felt just immediately so connected to the most important thing in my life was you know p- live performance i'd played probably 1100 shows before that and it felt within a you know a second. It felt completely insane that I'd stopped doing this thing that was so good for my nervous system, that was so good for for my mental health. And I kind of uh, you know after that show, I kind of made a decision that touring should be back in my life, and that I didn't want to produce bands anymore. And again, I love bands, but it felt like I had. Um, you know, that I had like turned my back on a potentially healthier way for me to make my, you know, my living. And so I started touring again, but I, I I toured very differently. I made a decision that I would only play house shows and that I was only going to work with Undertow. And they're like a very specific uh, booking agency that just does like, you know, art shows, house shows, like just weird events. And, and it's like, they're super punk. They're a bunch of like creative, you know, people who really believe in taking music out of bars, essentially. And, you know, if you tour for a long time, you're going to really start hating bars and you're going to want to get famous and you're going to want to get famous not to get more power. But yeah, maybe you want more power, more money, but you mostly want to not play bars anymore. (laughs) And you, want, you know what I mean? Like you want to play fucking theaters and like nice clubs and like, places that don't murder your soul, you know? And so I didn't get like, I never got big. I mean, first off, I was barely big enough to play clubs. And when that became like not viable, I like found so much like connection and exactly what I wanted, you know, vulnerability and like very unmediated performance playing house shows. And then I just started doing these like really modular house shows. Like I just, Ended up doing. I mean, I just finished one a week ago that was in the mid Midwest for three weeks, and I mean, fuck, you can just like plot out days out, days off, just to be with be with your friends, you know. So I was in Chicago hanging out with Bob Weston, and we went to the Art Institute, and I don't know, it's like amazing, you know. So you know, through touring and and really moving, I got my mental health got like so much better got so much stronger i went into, went into therapy i mean i've always run Ru- running really helps depression for me a lot so i've always been like a 5 day a week runner um and i think just the weather in la makes me really happy you know i mean i am a deeply emotionally volatile person so it's it's like a little bit of a, a dice roll every day but like for the most part I'm like genuinely happy and I have like I'm very vigilant about my mental health and I've fought this is like the great battle of my life has been with depression and I feel like I'm in a really really good space and I think that first off LA everyone gets LA wrong everyone's like people in LA are flaky and you're like there's so much traffic and it's like People want to fucking hang here, man. People are, they're like loyal motherfuckers here. There's a lot, everyone's creative. It's a company town. Like everyone works in the arts and like you can find your people here very easily. And it's, as far as community, it's way easier for me to find a community here than in San Francisco, just because there's just sheer numbers of people that are like making art here and they want, and people want to connect here. And also good weather makes people happy.
0: John is essentially the same person now that he was then, just an even more hyper version of that person. I've told people that that somehow John actually gets more energy the older he gets. I don't know how that can possibly happen, but it does. Um, the very first time I walked into the studio, he gave me a tour, and it was a very well rehearsed tour. And <laughs> he wasn't like assisting me on the session or anything, but he, he certainly seemed like he could have because he knew everything about the studio. Well, I should say that in the time that I was there, that first time doing a session, I saw John give tours to other people. Like, hey, can we, come, can we pop in, interrupt for a second, and give a tour? And he would give the same tour that he gave to me. He was like a tour guide. And it kind of dawned on me at that point, because I knew at this point that John wasn't actually, he wasn't a working engineer or producer necessarily. Like he would produce his own records and he would kind of do like a band like Spoon or Mountain Goats, a band that he was a big fan of, but he wasn't like a knock around producer, so to speak. And it dawned on me, because I had wondered, why does this guy even own a studio, why, why, would you, why would he do that, because it's not a viable business under most circumstances, and then it dawned on me that that's what he owned a studio for, because he totally loved the idea of building a place and then showing it to people, and sharing it, and getting them excited in the way that he was excited about things. Um, it it revealed itself to me, and then I never wondered about it even remotely again, why he was in it. Um, I can't, I I wouldn't dare make a summation of John, because then it would sound like John has finished something. Uh, I have no, uh, delusions that John is finished with anything. Um, John's in a quite a metamorphosis right now of discovering a new way to make music a new way to be a studio owner and a new way to be a person. So the mere notion that I could sum up something for John is dubious, so I'm not gonna try.
3: I mean, I hope that the tiny telephones of the world will always exist because there's nothing quite like a bunch of people in a room making music together. The world needs people like John Van And John's immense and like powerful ability to believe in art as something that heals, that that heals people and that has healed him and the way that he proselytizes so aggressively, I think that it helps like move the whole culture forward sometimes. And so we we need people like that.
1: I think the maybe the moral of the story is, you know, like the opening line of um, Locust Abortion Technician, the Butthole Surfer's record, where he says it's better to regret something you have done than you haven't done, which as a kid I did not understand, and now I completely understand. Like, I don't really have any regrets about any of this. I mean, I have plenty of regrets about how I've treated friends and co-workers and how I behaved in my own personal life, of course, but I simply had a loopy plan and I executed it with maniacal energy over 24 years and I kind of pulled it off you know I mean it was like anarchy and it was a mess but you know we're talking about it so (laughs) something happened right so I think that you have an idea and if it feels true to you and important I think then you put all of your blood into it you know you put everything you you have into it and what, like what else are you gonna do? You know what I mean. Like what, what else is the option? It's incredible. Okay, so here's here's the here's the wrap up. Maybe when you play music for a living and you make records and you're in at this point of contact, like I own a studio, so I talk to bands like every single day. I'm talking to bands. Um, it's a series of regrets that you're hearing from people about what they should have done or how they should have, like, you know, booked time for this record earlier, but they they lost their drummer, or what, whatever it is. Like, there's a million, like, scenarios where people are, like, locked into this, these, like, regret loops. They're almost paralyzed in this, like, non-action. And people have, you know, they've definitely, like, criticized me for being, like, too pro-action, you know what I mean? Like, I get like an idea and I just get on Twitter and I'm like, Hey, I need a hundred thousand dollars to build the studio. And, you know, it seems crazy. You know what I mean? But like, I don't know. I guess that the, the other side of that, the opposite of that to me is so wretched. You know what I mean? It's like, it feels like such a bad way to, um, to live with this, like what this potential stuff that's like unlocked. Like I don't, wonder what could have happened because I I made a bunch of crazy shit happen and like there's like moments where I'll just be I have a really bad insomnia it'll be 3-4 in the morning and I'll be like thinking about shit and I'll think about the studio and I'll think about like one you know one day of like oh watching like Deerhoof record or like the time Boz Skaggs was in the studio and you know if you don't know about he's like the, this legend legendary like 70s you know singer songwriter and he was like telling me how like valuable what I was doing was. He was like, this is like an amazing place and you've done such a, and I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, fuck man, this guy is like, he's recorded in every amazing studio in the world. And he was like giving me an EMT plate, which is this phenomenally expensive, you know, probably six or $7,000, um, reverb effects device from the, Early 60s, that was made in West Germany. He's like giving me this 1500 pound, you know, iconic, you know, rolled steel metal reverb unit for free because he believes in me and he likes me. And at this pivotal moment where he's giving me this plate, this 75 year old guy, I step on his foot. And it is so fu- like that. I, I mean, it is so gnarly the way I step on his foot, and he, he, he sends out this groan. I'm just like <laughs> pure pain, and I, <laughs> and like part of it was like I knew that I deeply hurt this like sweet old guy, and then part of me was like, whoa, this is genuinely funny, and I can't wait to tell someone.
0: This episode featured interviews with Meryl Garbus, John Congleton, and Tabor Allen, and music by the Dodos, Tune Yards, John Vanderslice, and me, Young Chomsky. John Vanderslice makes music as Orange Purple Beach, and his new record, Death Bug, will be out April 8th. This series was brought to you by Truanon. Thanks for listening. Now until next time, remember to keep the dream alive. One, two, three, five, and nine
4: is only half alive The curtains blow The frightened trees Line the moonlit Windy beach Four, five, six, seven My dreams Never touched on heaven They come, they stream They laugh, they bleed They drop me off in a thicket Of breeze